This episode of the podcast is part two of our interview with Dr. Dennis Lamaru. He is a Ph.D. theologian, a Ph.D. evolutionary biologist, and a dentist, a man with three doctorates, and one who is eminently qualified to talk about the intersection between science and faith. We enjoyed our discussion with him, and we hope that it is as beneficial to all of you as it was to us in our exploration of our faith and our pursuit of God's grace. things that so as I've gone through my journey in this this is one of those conversations that's really hard to have with people especially those within the um, traditional framework that Kevin and I both have have moved in and that we have kind of cut our teeth in so to speak because it is so far afield of what so many people just viscerally hold on to and just strongly hold on to. But whenever we talk about accommodation, like Kevin said, and like you said, you know, there's no better principle or no better example of accommodation than Jesus. And that idea of that message incident principle, as you refer to it in your, in your writings and, and the, the accommodation idea and that ideology, that's been incredibly helpful for me. And like we talked about, if if you're honest with yourself and if if everyone's honest with themselves, we will recognize that we have all done that regardless of what our viewpoint of young earth creationism is. But what's frustrating for me is, is the fact that whenever you try to have these conversations with some people is whenever you start talking about accommodation, we recognize that that is the case whenever it comes to the sacrificial system, when it comes to Kings, whenever it comes to Jesus in the incarnation, but as it relates to ancient science, we recognize that's the case as well with heliocentrism. We recognize that's the case with a round earth. We recognize that that's the case with, with the earth being set on pillars and immovable on bats as birds or rabbits as ruminants or, or whatever else that we've discussed in previous episodes. Why is it so hard? I mean, I'm sure it was hard 400 years ago with the Galileo affair, but why is it so hard in, in your opinion, from your experience for so many people to be able to accept that accommodation principle as it relates to origins and looking at those first few chapters of Genesis through a more contextual literary lens? Why, why is it hard for people to accept that in that case? Well, it's simply because it, I'm going to come back to we as evangelicals have a tradition and the dominant position is young earth creation. And it's not like this is going to disappear overnight. It's going to take a generation, if not two. And that's why I love teaching the Galileo affair. I mean, the big debate in Galileo's day, it wasn't about a flat earth. It was whether the earth moved or not, or whether the sun moved or not. And look, at they took a long time to sort of come to terms with that. <laughs> and it only amounted to a handful of verses. You know, these verses where the sun moves and the earth doesn't move. Now, when you start dealing with this evolution stuff, this isn't some handful of verses. This is chapters, the opening chapters of the Bible. These involve Paul and Romans 5, I mean, the Adam passage. Um, So this is not going to be done easy. The other thing is a ton of systematic theology has been built on this. So when you start challenging this, 
you're really challenging the structure. And here's what I'll argue is that this ancient science was not recognized. It got incorporated into our church creeds, the great Protestant creeds of the 15th and 16th century, and it's going to take some time to unravel. The other thing, and I'm going to really emphasize this, is we've got to be pastoral on this stuff. For example, I go to a Pentecostal church. I am a senior citizen. I'm 66 years of age. So I go to church with all the old guys. I... <laughs> I you get your 25 cent a coffee at McDonald's. My dad likes that. <laughs> no, I haven't scored any of that yet, but I suppose I should. But I, so I go to a church where I say 95% of the people I worship with, and they're wonderful Christians, are young earth creationists. And the other thing, remember the church. It's not for you guys who've had fancy education. The church is for everyone. Yeah, it's going to include some people with education. And so when I went to that church, pastor knew me ahead of time. And I says, we need to have a chat just to know what the deal is with me. Sunday for me is my day off. I don't do any theology on Sundays. I go to church to try to sing some praise and worship music. I can't sing, but I try my best. You never want to stand beside me at church and to hear a good sermon. And I said, look at if anyone figures out who I am and tries to take a run at me, I will turn around and run to my car and leave. And if they want to say they want me, so be it. So what I'm saying is, for most of the people in my church, and this is not a condescending statement, this is a pastoral statement, they have to go to their graves as young earth creationists. There's no sense in riling them up, confusing them, and spinning their heads. And I think that's the right thing. And the Lord has made that very clear to me. Now, there is a but here. But. What about the young adults? The kids are going to university. That's really where I focus most of my time because these young people are seeing the evolutionary evidence. They've heard something else, sort of like your apologetics conferences for young earth creation, and they don't know what to do. The churches are not helping them on this. And, and so we're seeing this exodus of young people. And if you, you follow the Barna study, in 2011, 59% of these kids are checked out by age 15. And one of the six reasons is the, the science problem and the evolution problem. So, wow. oh yeah, I mean, it's a stunning Man. number. And so what I, what I said to my pastor, I said, look, at, I will never be a member of your church to protect you, and so you don't have any authority over me. Now, I have no trouble with people in authority over me. Look, I work at a, at a college. I work at a university. I got guys who are my bosses. But the reason I do this is to save you from the embarrassment of someone on the board or someone in the church says, Lammer is a member. Uh, we need a heresy trial or a disciplinary hearing. And they still have this stuff going on. And so I said, I'll support your church financially, but I'll be an adherent. So we don't have to create a problem for you, the board, or people. And so, but if you want me to talk to the young people, the young adults in college and careers, many of whom are going to university, we'll do it on my home turf. That is the university. We will not do it on your church property. And I think that's the proper way to do it. And again, this is not going to happen overnight. And as I look at my students in the very last class, and many of them are furious. Oh, some are so mad with their pastors, their parents, and the evangelical schools where they were taught young earth creation. And I say, okay, guys, just take a deep breath. 
You've had the privilege of a lot of university here. You see the pattern, but you always have to operate pastorally. You always have to think, how can I build up? How can I encourage? So for me, and I tell them this, this, you know, when I was younger, I had the lust, and it is a lust to be right all the time, the lust to win every argument. That is completely burnt out of my system. And sometimes if it takes walking away and someone trashing me verbally, that doesn't phase me in the least. Because you know something? There was a guy 40 years ago who used to do that very th same thing, and his name was Dennis Lamaru. So Dennis, get a taste of your own medicine. But no, that I think that's the right thing to do. Build and encourage. And I tell my students, you know, put a thermometer metaphorically in someone's mouth. And if you see the temperature rise, back off. Maybe it's going to take three or four months later that maybe you can come back to this conversation. Build up, build up, build up. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Do not tear out down and do not destroy your brothers in Christ for whom Jesus died. Dennis, I'm just so impressed with not only your knowledge, but m really uh, even far more important than your knowledge is your Christ-like spirit. Um, wow. my, my wife and I, we were watching uh, some of your videos on YouTube and lectures, and she said, you can tell this is a man who bears the fruit of the spirit. And, and this is, I think, why what you're doing is so important, because you're not just teaching, you're living this out. I mean, the fact that you're at a congregation, you're at a church, and you're, you're able to be so humble, that, that honestly is absolutely fantastic. And I just want to say thank you, and I appreciate that, because that's what's going to bring Christians closer together to be able to openly discuss and to be okay to agree to disagree. And, and instead of dehumanizing each other, realizing that we're all at different places in our faith. And that to me is, is remarkable. It really is. And I, did, I appreciate that. I hope people listening will, will take a cue from that because I don't honestly know very many people who are as highly educated as you are that takes a position like you do that would not want to just go in there and say, hey, let me teach a Bible class starting this Sunday and I want everybody in there and I'm going to set you guys straight. So in a year, everybody's going to see things just the way I see it because, yeah. because that would be probably the way that I would want to do things. And so I just want to say uh, your Christ-like spirit is, is it's amazing and I just really appreciate it. Well, that, that that's that's too kind. Look, at I'm a, I'm just a regular sinner like everyone else. Um, I will tell you one thing uh, in my walk of faith that's so important. Um, it's being in the Word of God every day. Um, I'm a, look at any guy's got three doctoral degrees. He's wound a little too tight. I mean, I understand that personality. <laughs> um, um, being an ex-military guy, I'm a morning guy, so. Once I uh, get up in the morning, I ought to turn on the computer and let's rock and roll academically. But the Holy Spirit, and I don't say this self-righteously, but the first fruits of my mind is for my morning devotion in Scripture. And when I read Scripture devotionally, I'm there saying, Holy Spirit, build me up, encourage me, admonish me, challenge me, correct me. And um, part of that process, and you know, it happened a while ago, and it's not to say I haven't been an idiot and chopping people up. I haven't done it often, but it, and it's a long time ago. But let me tell you, I, when I did it, I remember one of the first times of all things it was my younger brother, you know, and I look back and I heard him. And he didn't have the privilege of university. And there I was just waving the axe. 
but boy, did the Holy Spirit put the brakes on that early. And that's uh, always in the back of my mind. Um, and I think most people can understand that. You want to build people up. You don't want to tear them down. And sometimes it's it's you you got to take you know take a hit for the team. You know, I used to play college hockey. The higher the level of hockey you go, more stick work. You know, people are hacking you all the time, and you can't react every time someone hacks you because you'll be in the penalty box and you're going to cost your team some goals. So you've got to take some of these hits. And look at we've got the perfect example of this. Jesus took all yeah. sorts of whippings and a crucifixion for us. So let's 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 follow Christ. Let's take some of these hits. And and the one thing is um as you know you continue to grow and stuff like that, I think this is part of growth and getting older is you start realizing there's certain things they're not that important. And one of the things that's not that important is always being right. I've I've got that out of my system, but that came out of my system with the Holy Spirit convicting me both in the Word of God, you know, and also in activities in my life where the Holy Spirit says, all right, smarten up. You, you don't need to say something back like that. And uh, thankfully, I've learned from the Lord in that way. Well, and piggybacking off of what Kevin said, that's one of the things that I appreciate about your writing. You know, Kevin refers to the videos that he's seen you be a part of, he and his wife, and it, it, that really comes through in your writing as well. I, I've done a lot of reading on this subject. Remember, I was going through my faith crisis and trying to navigate those waters. I read a lot of books by a lot of different authors, and you could always tell there were some authors that had a chip on their shoulder, whether it was against young yep. earth creationism or whether yep. it was against evolution. And none of that comes through in what you write. And that's why I recommend your books above everybody else's on the subject, because it, for a Christian to read what you have written, your love for Jesus, your love for the scriptures comes through every single page you write. And it's, it's incredible to me that you can take something as, as I think Kevin said it earlier, we may have done it on the air. We may have done it before we hit record, but if, for you to break down concepts and topics that are incredibly dense and hard to wade through and navigate through, you present it at such an easy level to absorb. And that to me is incredibly remarkable. It's, it's, it's wild. So I, I appreciate your, your attitude and, and your tone as well. And one of the things I really liked about your book, um, Evolution, Science, and Scripture Say Yes, and I may have got the S's backwards on that, yeah. is you went into some of those transitional forms. You, you mentioned that yeah. earlier in this podcast, this idea of, of teeth and the development of teeth. And in that light, I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit if I can. A lot of evangelicals, whenever you start discussing evolution, and this is something that I would say is as well, the, the evidence for evolution is sparse or it's it's special pleading or it's, you know, it's really not there at best. It's just something that a bunch of godless atheists came up with so that they could live their lives any way they wanted to. But whenever you really start to dig into the fossil record, you start looking at different biological organisms. And one thing that comes to my mind, and you may have may have seen this, is the persistence of a median artery in the forearm. Have you seen anything about that in, in recent weeks? Yeah, no, I haven't. I, that's that's news to me. 
Well, it's really interesting because they're starting to see in a higher population the persistence of a median artery within the forearm. And they're saying within another 80 to 150 years that that could be the norm rather than the exception to the norm. And within, I think they said another 250 to 300 years, it will be the norm. It will be there in practically wow. 100% of the population. It, it's incredible. Wow. And to me, I see things like that and I see you know, God at work through the evolutionary process. But what are some other examples? What would be the top three, just to pick a number, the most solid evidences that prove that evolution was the mechanism that God used to create mankind? Well, you know, and I look, I I used to, I didn't teach many Sunday schools on there is no evidence for the fossil record. And let me make it very clear. I would love to be an anti-evolutionist. Do you realize how much easier my life would be? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I can attest to that. It's so much easier. There's a guy named Lauren Wilkinson at Regent College. He's a literary scholar who really changed my life. And he invited me to speak a couple of years after I graduated. And I said, Wilkinson, do you know what you've done? You've wrecked a really great career. Could you imagine? (laughs) I would have remained a young earth creationist with three earned doctoral degrees. What sort of career I would have? And Wilkinson's really funny. He sort of tipped his head back. He says, you know, I'm kind of proud of that, to tell you the truth. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, you know, to to deal with the science, I would simply say... I won't even pick a book, but I would suggest to listeners go to any good college or university library and start first with geology and start to see why people think the world is old. And then here would be the first piece of evidence is when you look at the geological record, and I'm going to limit this to the vertebrates because most people don't know much about invertebrates and neither do I. Uh, Being a tooth guy, uh, it's vertebrates who have teeth. And there's a pattern here. At the bottom of that record, you see fish, then amphibians, then reptiles, and then at the top, mammals and humans. And that pattern never breaks. Every time a fossil is found, it always fits perfectly in terms of what evolution should expect. Now, I'm going to go and narrow this a little bit to my to my world of teeth. And here's what the fossil record shows with regards to fish. At the bottom of the record, there are fish without mouths. Then you have fish with mouths. And then you have fish with mouths and teeth. In other words, there's this progression going on. And for those who might know the fossil record, I've done a lot of work on what are called the acanthodians. And the amazing thing about the acanthodians, and when it comes to... Um, the stuff for supporting uh, different living organisms starts with cartilage and then eventually gets on to uh, bones uh, like us. And when it comes to the fossil record, what you find in the acanthodians is the front part of the jaw is cartilage and the back part of the jaw is bone. Bone is in the process of going to replace the cartilage. And it's there's your classic transitional form in which you have a jaw with cartilage at the front, the back of the jaw, it's bone, classic, classic transition. And so when you see stuff like that, it's amazing. Now, continuing, and Lee will pro- might remember this from, from uh, our anatomy days, 
when it comes to this cartilage from the acanthodians, the very early fish, it doesn't disappear, but it shows up in development in humans. It's called Meckel's cartilage. And in fact, when it comes to the acanthodian fish, the front part is called the Meckelian cartilage and it gets enveloped it disappears, but there's a remnant of a ligament called this phenomandibular ligament, which is uh, an evolutionary vestige of the uh, of of the Mechelian cartilage. Okay, so well, that I was going to say, if I can interject just real yep. quick, I was going to say that was one of the issues that was raised to me that I couldn't ever get past, even whenever I returned to faith and found Jesus once again. I kept circling back because you see that same process take place in embryonic development. You see oh, that. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you see that with, with the way the fetal skeleton forms because you have those primordial chondroblasts that, that give yep. rise to cartilage. And then that cartilage ossifies and becomes bone from yep. those primary and secondary ossification centers. And it's, it's just, it's so hard to move past that whenever you're trying to engage in that concordist philosophy and worldview. Absolutely. And, and you're spot on and, and uh, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, that I started seeing. Now, let me, let me also praise the Lord here. When it came to that second PhD, I just want to do teeth and evolution, teeth and evolution. And there was this woman on my committee who was a developmental biologist. And she was just railing at me that I've got to do more developmental biology. And I just wanted nothing to do with it. But she's on the committee. Let me tell you. <laughs> you had no choice. <laughs> I had no choice. I'm a student. Um, I look back now, and that's another example. You see this in retrospect often, where you see the Lord's hand. And if you want to know where I started seeing the mechanisms for evolution, it all came through this developmental stuff. And so in the early 1990s, there was a new discipline that emerged called EVO-DEVO, Evolutionary Developmental Biology. And of course, I was right in the center of it. So when it comes to my PhD, it was half development and half evolution. And by understanding development, then you could understand evolution. And it was because of development that I realized. So I've seen the pattern in the, uh, with regards to teeth, but I was still wondering about mechanism, mechanisms. And what developmental biology made me realize is that by putting in a simple molecule like retinoic acid and increasing the concentration of it in a limb, and they used to do this experiment on chick limbs, you could churn, you know, just like our, our typical arm with a humerus um, and, and uh, ulna radius and, and ulna, radius. Yeah. Um, you can turn that lower forearm from two bones into one bone, from two bones into three bones. It, and it was just by increasing one developmental molecule. And from a genetics perspective, you know, to, to change those two bones into three is just turning the dial a little longer to let the retinoic acid, you know, go into this primordial uh, limb. And when I saw how quickly things could change with very little genetic uh, changing, other than and we call this heterochrony, changing the timing by a little bit, you can get massive changes uh, morphologically. So, uh, so that that was one. And then I'll give you one, the third one. Um, they don't use this term anymore, but it's so helpful. In the fossil record between reptiles and mammals, there's a series, an entire class called mammal 
like reptiles. And so what they're basically saying by using the term mammal-like reptiles is they look like mammals, but they also look like reptiles, and maybe they look a little more like reptiles. And we have over um, at least a thousand species there, and you see the transition going on both in the teeth, where when it comes to reptiles, they're all single little cones. As you go in the direction of, of mammals, which have lots of little bumps on their teeth, and the reason there's lots of little bumps is so you can grind the, the food stuff a lot better so you can get more nutrition, because when you come on the mammal, you need a lot more energy than, say, a reptile, that all you gotta do is bite and swallow, bite and swallow. And you see that pattern there. And one of the most amazing, amazing transitions is when it comes to reptiles, the two, the two jaw joints are on completely different bones than in mammals. On mammals, it's the squamosal and the dentary, and in reptiles, it's the articular and the angular. And all of a sudden, you're going, whoa. I mean, where's the transition there? You can't just start changing the jaw joints and the bones. I mean, that's that's got that, 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 an animal needs a jaw. It's going to die. So how's that going to work? Well, here's the solution. I mean, when I saw this, I just about died. I couldn't believe it. Mammal-like reptiles have not just one jaw joint. They have two jaw joints. They have the reptilian jaw joint. And then they also have the newly emerging mammalian jaw joint. So in other words, in the jaw of mammal-like reptiles, both the reptile jaw joint and the mammal-like jaw joint. And classic example of affirmation. And the other thing is found right at the perfect place of the transition from reptiles to mammals. Now, in the fossil record, that's fascinating. I know Kevin has a question for you that he wants to ask. But before he asks that question, I have a question for you. And do we see that because in your history, and we may be getting deeper into the weeds and our audience cares for, but I don't yeah. care. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. Um, <laughs> with um, one of the things that I work on occasionally with some of my patients is if they have TMJ issues, yeah. sometimes they can have an issue with that rudimentary disc. And with the, with the TMJ being more or less a... Um, Oh, I, I just went blank on the term. It, it's basically a, a joint that moves in in two planes. You know, you have yeah. the hinge portion and the gliding portion. Yeah, hinge it, and is, glide, is yeah. that a holdover? Is that a holdover from that development from reptilian to mammalian? I do not know, but I know what you're talking about, TMJ. And you might be interested. Remember, I was telling you they the military threw me threw me in a hospital to follow a surgeon to see, you know, do I want to become a maxillofacial surgeon? And back then in the 80s, they, uh, they used to grab this disc and they used to tie it down to the ramus of the mandible to try to stabilize it. And of course, they got some patients comfortable, but what were they doing? They were denervating de the capsule. And of course, once you got the nerves gone, it ain't, it ain't hurting no more. It ain't going to hurt, but give it six months and it's going to re-innervate. But here's the thing that I realized my personality couldn't handle, where the surgeon said to me, well, we'll have to wait till the patient wakes up to determine whether I hit the seventh cranial nerve, that is the facial nerve. And I thought, I'm going to do surgery and I'm not sure whether I'm going to nip the, the, cranial, <laughs> the facial nerve and make people paralyzed on one side of their face. And I thought, well, I don't have, I don't have the, the, the intestinal fortitude. And that was really the, uh, the, the piece that really said to me, no, I'll go to medicine instead of maxillofacial. I just, 
I mean, there's some well, guys who can do that. I don't have the the guts to do sort of stuff like well, that. And that kind of issue is why I went into chiropractic instead of medical school. So I'm right there with you on that. But I know that as a follow-up to the idea of the reptilian development from the reptilian jaw structure into the mammalian jaw structure with the uh, um, reptile or mammal-like reptiles, um, Kevin had a question that he was wanting to ask you. And I, I think it's a really, really cool question. I'm really interested to hear what, what the answer to this would be. Okay. Yeah. So, well, and not just to, with that, but but really leading up to to that answer and everything you said prior, I'll, I would I would go out on a limb here and say that young Earth creation scientists probably know these things exist. I mean, unless they're studying in a vacuum, they would know that this evidence is out there. So, how do they reconcile? their understanding of a literal six-day creation, a young earth, with the oppositional evidence that is out there? Well, I can't speak for them. Um, you know, Kirk Wise did a PhD in paleontology at Harvard um, under no one less than Stephen Jay Gould. But the one thing, and, and, and let me tell you, it comes back to... If I hadn't done that specialization in Genesis 1 to 11 at Regent College, followed by theology at the PhD level at Toronto, I probably would be part of that crew. And the, the, the issue is they can't go beyond the concordism because the tradition doesn't allow them to go beyond the concordism. And... Because the concordism is so ingrained, and that's the tradition that's made it that way, and you're always filtering. Look at everyone filters information through their worldview. So if you have a worldview that will not allow for evolution, um, you may see some evolutionary evidence, and you may overlook it simply because it's not part of your category set. Now, let me tell you, as a young, a former young Earth creationist, that when I go and do scientific data, I've always got my evolutionary, my young Earth creationist uh, mindset in the background saying, you know, how do you explain this? But the only reason I can move beyond that is because I don't have this issue that the Bible has to line up with the young Earth creationist world. I'm free of that. And that's hugely, hugely important. So I will not, let, let me make one thing. I will not question the integrity of these guys. Uh, they love the Lord, but there is a different packaging between myself and them. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story. I won't give you the name, but he's very well known. And, you know, we've, we've had a, a good relationship. And I said to him, you know, what do you, I, I really think this all boils down to, interpreting scripture i mean how mm -hmm. do you how do you approach scripture and he says well my mom taught me in sunday school that we read scripture literally and that's the way i do it now out of utter respect i just didn't say anything you know i i wanted to say stop you've got a phd you know there's more to this puzzle uh, your mom hasn't got a phd in theology and yeah okay everyone loves their mom and you respect your mom Look, my mom's a young earth creationist. I'm not, I didn't remain a young earth creationist because of my mom. I knew my mom was missing tons of pieces on the hermeneutics. And this is where the guy is. And I mean, it was, it was a great lesson. I love the guy. I think he's a great Christian. Um, but it was, 
That was his answer. And I'll say the same thing for another young earth creationist. You know, uh, and I said, look, you know, this great education, one of the greatest universities in the world in humanities. You must have done some courses on English and literature and stuff like that. And his return to me was, well, my dad taught me in Sunday school, but you read it literally. And I go, well, okay, great. Your, your dad's a pastor, but, you know, there's another level of theology at the academic level. You know, guys who specialize in Genesis 1 to 11, you know, well beyond your, the fa your father's uh, training. Uh, and again, I, out of respect, didn't push back that hard, but I just sat back and I thought, okay, I can see how these guys do this because... They've never got out of that young earth creationist box that everything has to be concordism, 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 and literal. And that's where they're at. Well, I now let me, let me say, okay, let me say something really outrageous. That maybe you guys will edit this out. We, no, we, go love, ahead. we, we love outrageous, we, man. The, we, the more outrageous, the better. We tend right. to not edit these very much. So you just go You, you might edit what I'm about to say. <laughs> I believe, and I believe truly in my heart, that the Lord blesses uh, some of these young earth creationist writers and people like that because the church needs them. People in the church need them. And this is not a condescending statement. This is just, this is the, where they're at. It's like the guys that go to church with on Sunday morning, all the old guys. This is where they're at. And by the way, our church has the largest young earth creationist conference every year. And... I believe that this is in God's grace. In the same way that God accommodated to me as a young earth creationist, because that's the only thing I understood, the Lord is accommodating and using these people. Because here's a standard number. It's a little old. It's 2004, coming out of the States. 87% of evangelical Christians are young earth creationists. And so the Lord is not going to pull the rug from under them because I could see this disastrous be, being disastrous from a pastoral perspective. So the transition is going to take a couple generations. The transitions start always with the younger people. And I fully believe that we need to have some people still standing up like the Ken Hams to say there is a young earth creationist model because that's what people need that's 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 where they're at and i would never take that away from them and that's not a condescending statement that is a pastoral statement well and well, i think that that just goes to show just how important accommodation is because it, it to me it seems like the same thing would be true in the ancient near east if you have god revealing his eternal spiritual truths and you know, as, as that inerrant message that he wanted to deliver as the message that he wanted to bring to humanity. And he decided to change the incidentals to match that of a physical reality. And he said, okay, so here's the way it all works. And I know you guys think that the earth is flat and it ain't, it ain't really moving all that much, but let me tell you something, you're on a ball and you're spinning through space really, really fast that would have likely interfered with the people of the time's ability to absorb what was being presented. I mean, is that something? Oh, that you oh you're, you're spot on. They, they, they would, they, they would have written you off completely. Like I say to my students, the Holy spirit could have done this in Genesis one. I created through the big bang, the war, the, the cosmos evolved and then living organisms evolved. Would anyone 3,500 years ago have understood that? And the answer is no, no one would have understood that. 
And so God had to accommodate for them to understand. And it's come, and I'm going to use that personal argument. And we all say this in evangelical circles. God meets us exactly where we're at. The Holy Spirit, when he started the revelatory process in Genesis 1, met these people and the writer exactly where they're at. But at the same time, using this ancient science as an incidental vessel, he also inspired some inerrant spiritual truths that changed the world. Number one, God created the world, and there's only one God, the God of the Hebrews. Number two, the creation is very good. And number three, out of Genesis 1, so important, only we've been created in the image of God and in God's likeness. Yeah, their framework and their filter that they ex- that they had in that day would not have allowed them to accept it had it been delivered in a different vehicle, a different incidental vehicle. That's right. They, they wouldn't have got it. And I, I'll, I'll give you an example. And here's another thing. Here's a problem of us as 21st century guys. When we think of the sun, moon, and stars, we just think of them as inert planets and balls of fire. But in the ancient world, especially surrounding the Hebrews, the sun, moon, and stars, what were they? They were gods. And so what does the Holy Spirit do by inspiring the writer of Genesis 1 and 2? He turns these gods into mere creations. In fact, he doesn't even use the proper name for moon and sun. And he says to the Hebrew writer that the sun, moon, and stars, what will they do? You don't serve them. They will serve you to mark seasons and times. So, I mean, it's very subtle. I mean, this would have been, this. I mean, this is radical to, to turn these into mere creations and they're not gods. And to give you the equivalent today would be as if I walked into your church and stand, stood at the front and said, hey, you guys, this Jesus that you guys are serving, you got it all wrong. Let Jesus be your servant boy. And you know the riot I would start in your church. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what the writer of Genesis Genesis 1 is doing. He's taking these so-called gods and turning them into creations of the only God, the God of the Hebrews. At the same time, they are a good creation. They're not being dissed, but they are not gods and they are not worthy of worship. And not only that, they're going to serve you, my special creature, those created in the image of God, men and women. Yeah, well, everything you just said is is absolutely phenomenal and something that I know personally I can relate to, and I know Lee can as well, because we both had a framework of a law-based salvation, a law-based religion. Yeah. And until you move away from that to a grace-relational uh, framework and paradigm, then you're it's very hard to have a conversation with somebody who approaches Christianity very much as a works-based. And I'm not even saying they believe it's works-based, because... When I believed in a works-based salvation, I didn't think that I believed in a works-based salvation. That's and right. So it was it was moving away from that that I realized I can't have this conversation with someone who still believes or someone that I know believes in a works-based salvation. If they are coming at it differently than I'm coming at it, it's really not going to work. And so everything you just said makes perfect sense because that's how I was finally able to reconcile the idea that there are a lot of good, sincere people who see things differently than I do and things that I would firmly disagree with, but things that I don't think ultimately would affect their salvation per se. And and because they are sincerely placing their faith in Jesus, they are doing what they think they need to be doing. 
And I am careful now to try to disrupt that. Now, if, if once again, there's a lot of factors we could bring in if they're drawing lines and if it becomes destructive to their possible own salvation or possibly to their own salvation or somebody else's, that's where I think some intervention needs to come in. But by and large, there's a lot of people they have placed their faith in Jesus. They just have a different framework than I do on how I relate to Jesus in my relationship. And I just have kind of let it lie. And if they start asking questions and if they really want to know, and I don't think it's going to shake their faith, I'll engage in them if I believe that they're really wanting a genuine conversation and not just to argue or debate. But I think that was brilliantly said, what you, the way that you, you frame that. But also, when you were talking, I thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because that's exactly what Paul is telling the Christians in Corinth to do. He's saying that the the absolute truth is that there's nothing wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So there is truth. There is a right. There is a wrong. There is truth. But here's the thing. If there's a lot of you there, or if there's some of you there who still believe that it is wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't do it. And yep. so he wasn't asking them to abandon their conviction, even though it was a wrong conviction. He was asking the, the ultimately he was telling the ones who had the correct conviction to accommodate the ones who had the wrong conviction. And when you go back to first Corinthians chapter eight, it's the very first, uh, very first verse. We see why knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, love edifies. And Everything always comes back to that. Every time we see accommodation, it's on that basis of love. And so I really, I, I was thinking to myself, I like tying in 1 Corinthians 8 to what you said, because I think it harmonizes perfectly and hopefully will make a lot of sense to the audience. Yeah, look, you're spot on. And that example of food that Paul talks about, that's exactly the parallel. And if you look at my Bible, I've got the terms EVCR, evolution creation debate. This is the application. <laughs> Um, the faith is a lot larger in terms of what we eat. And if there's something that's being eaten, it'll be a stumbling block. Well, then step away from that. Uh, Jesus died for these people and don't let your truth be a stumbling block. And I, and, and that's the way I think this whole evolution versus creation debate should be done is with always in mind of building people up, uh, and, and being sensitive, not to tear them down. And sometimes maybe you're, the, 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 the holiest thing you can do is just not say anything because it's, it's, it's just too volatile an issue. And I don't want, want to be a stumbling block. Well, one of the biggest issues that a lot of people have with this line of thinking is exactly what you just said, Dennis, is it is a stumbling block to them because to them that, that filter and presupposition, and, and that's one of the things Kevin and I have talked about on this podcast almost ad nauseum, is how detrimental presuppositional thinking can be because we all have them and we can recognize we have them, but it can be really difficult to move past them to, to try to, to read the scriptures on, on their terms. And a lot of people that, that get trapped in that concordist mindset especially when it relates to science, they do so from a place of sincerity because to them, the entire trustworthiness of the scriptures is built upon that concordance framework. I mean, you know, one of the reasons oh. I oppose an ancient universe and I oppose evolution for so long were some of the theological implications. I mean, if yeah. I can't trust the first book of the Bible from where it opens up 
how can I trust the Bible at all if the first book isn't reliable? If from the very beginning, I can't trust what I'm reading there, well, then I might as well just throw the whole thing away. And that's the mentality that a lot of Christians have that, that exists within that either or mindset and within that Concordus framework. Exactly. And that is, and look at, they're being perfectly reasonable given their data set. And yes. This is, and, and in my case, I it, no, it takes me three years of university to all of a sudden kind of see stuff. It took me three, <laughs> took me three years of grad school, uh, specializing in Genesis 1 to 11, till finally, look, at, and I didn't come all the way to where I am today. I mean, I just made that, that baby step, if you wish. And it was a scary step where I'm going, I did not see this ancient stuff in the scriptures. And I did have that moment. It was a little scary. There was about 20 to 30 seconds where this really got into my soul. And I thought, man, did I ever ruin my life? I had this amazing military career. And then I took off to do this crazy thing of becoming a creation scientist. And, you know, in the middle of all that darkness, it was, uh, it actually happened in the library uh, in my very last year. And I had everything in my thesis, except for this last paper, where I, you know, I re it really sunk in, and I saw it in the Hebrew because I'd I'd done enough Hebrew to see it, and all of a sudden it it, it was there was this dark moment, and I was, I was I was I was as furious as I've ever been furious in my life, and I thought to heck with this, and I didn't say to heck with this. I assure you, it was a lot worse. But I <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving all my stuff on my Carol in the library. I'm going to my car. I'm not even going back to get my clothes or books. I'm getting in my car right now and I'm driving 750 miles northwest back home to reinvent my life. And then all of a sudden, and part of the thing of being a Christian, you get a sense of when the Holy Spirit's talking to you. But I'll also say in if this was in Vancouver and I'm looking outside the window and Vancouver in the spring, there's nothing more beautiful. The snow-capped mountains, the green of the trees below that, and then the ocean. And so what am I saying? The heavens were declaring the glory. Uh, the heavens were declaring uh, God's glory uh, at me. I'm, and, and, and then I felt these arms so go around me. And the Holy Spirit say to me, Dennis, your job was to open the library at 8 in the morning and close it at 10 at night. My job, speaking in the Holy Spirit, was to teach you what I actually did here in Scripture during the revelatory process. And then it was that point that I, you know, I, I just hit me going, all right, this is going to be my dictum. I will submit to the very words in the Word of God, like the word firmament. There's a hard, firm structure there in Genesis 1. I will submit to that no matter what. And then I'll work out a way to try to make sense of this. And of course, I had an idea of how it could all be done. To simply say, got accommodated. Uh, look at this notion of accommodation. And, you know, as evangelicals, Calvin was steeped in accommodation. I mean, that's where I was getting ideas oh, of yeah. accommodation. And so it was that point I realized, okay. And I, I, you know, I made the shift. And I did not leave my stuff on my carol. I finished that paper. And, you know, went on to the to the next program after that. So uh, it, it was, you know, it was a voyage. Um, and, and 
part of the voyage as Christians is we're going to run into places where it's going to get pretty sticky and not sure what ends up. And I and here's my experience, especially within the academy, but it, it also includes, you know, personal personal events is and this is why we talk about trusting God. And of course, God does test us as well. And sometimes where it doesn't look good, keep trusting the Lord. In my experience, especially in the academy, is when I have a problem, it's because I'm missing some pieces somewhere along the line. And it is just amazing how often the Lord sends someone in my direction, or I just sort of stumble upon a book to solve the problem I was having. And of course, this is just an example of God's grace and God's providence. But always trust no matter what. That's what we're asked to do. Well, and that to me is is the central theme of of my life within the last couple of years is this idea of trusting anyway. And you know, you look at someone, you, you look at something like Job. You look yep. at that story, and that's that's the general thrust of it. Is sometimes things are going to happen that do not make sense in that moment, but you trust anyway. You know, sometimes a wind's going to blow your house down and destroy everything that you've ever built, and you're going to grow boils all over your body, but trust anyway. You know, sometimes you're going to come across something in the Hebrew. I probably never will because I can't read Hebrew, but you're going to come across something in the Hebrew that just, you know, blows your mind wide open. You're ready to throw up your hands and quit, but just trust anyway. And that's one of the things that, that I have learned to do is, is trust anymore. Um, one of the questions that I wonder though is, hey, is can I follow up on Job just for a second? Cause you, yeah, 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 get after it. I mean, you notice what Job is. You go for about 37 chapters. They're battling, trying to make sense of all this. And who comes in at the end? God comes in. And what does God do? He does not give a verbal explanation. In other words, a word-for-word -word explanation for Job's suffering. But he takes Job around the creation and points at the creation. God is using an intelligent design argument. So in the same way I was struggling in the library, what did the Lord do? He blasted intelligent designs through the beauty in, in, in Vancouver to say he's in control. And that's exactly what Job comes to the conclusion is at the end of all this, nature comforts him, puts him in, puts him in a position to know that God is in control. God's aware of your suffering. Doesn't give him an answer on the theodicy question, which is really one of those tough questions. But the creation through intelligent design comforts them. And I will tell you, there's been moments in my life, you know, with broken relationships and stuff like that. And I just started finding myself walking through the river valley. In this city, we have an amazing river valley. And I now look back and go, why did I like walking through the river valley or walking home from work through the river valley? It's because the Lord was putting his arms around me through all the beauty within nature, declaring he was in control. And it's and it's so beautiful whenever whenever we're able to see all of that at work and it all comes together. Yeah. And God speaks to us through the book of His works. It, it's incredible, and I think we've all experienced that. But as it relates to the reliability of Scripture, one of the things that that we keep circling back around to, and that you've written at length about, and that has helped me tremendously, is that accommodative principle. 
And, and that idea of the accommodative principle and recognizing that message incident principle and the inerrant spiritual truths revealed within scripture and recognizing the incidental framework in which they're presented. One of the analogies you use in your new book is that cup principle. You know, if I give you a drink of water, what, what matters is the water. It doesn't matter whether the cup is glass or pewter or silver. Yeah. Or plastic, you know, the cup is an incidental to the message or to the the thing of the water. You know, the spiritual uh, message is is what really matters. But one of the things that I wonder, as helpful as that accommodation principle has been for me, how far do we take that? I mean, how far is too far? Well, you know, the one thing when it comes to the message incident principle, and if you look at the diagram. Under the word Bible, I have statements about nature. That's so I'm I'm not offering a global understanding of the message incident principle. I'm just focusing on statements about the natural world. And I think they can be applied to all these statements in scripture. Now, does accommodation go in other directions? Sure. And this is where I'd simply say other specialists. Look at it's it's like in healthcare. Uh, you're a chiropractor. I'm a dentist. We're notoriously specialized. And when we look yes. at theologians, they're the very same way. So I'm really a Genesis 1 to 11 guy when it comes to scripture. It's not to say I don't, you know, look at the other parts, but, you know, um, and yeah, I've done Greek and, you know, can unpack some New Testament stuff. But um, we stay within our province and our, our specialization. So I give you an example. Look, let's use the message incident principle in sort of a, a cultural context and think of Good Thursday where Jesus washes the feet of his disciple disciples. I would say the act of washing the disciples' feet is really incidental. I mean, in fact, no one does it today. But I would simply say the principle of you serving everyone and with Jesus being Lord to serve his disciples, that would be the spiritual truth. So we could sort of apply it today. And I'll give you an example in the military that when Christmas comes along, there's this big Christmas dinner and we don't separate the officers from the troops. And what happens is the youngest privates, we line them all up to find out who's the youngest. The very youngest puts on the commanding officer's colonel jacket. And then the kid gives him his private jacket. And we sit all these young guys at the, at the table, at the head table. And here we are as officers, we're serving them. So I'd say the principle of serving those who actually serve you is being, you know, is a reflection of going all the way back to this tradition of Jesus serving his disciples. So um, we can change the incidental stuff, but the principle of serving those who serve you I think that's the inerrant spiritual truth and all that. So here's an example of how that can be applied, say, within a cultural context. But is there a lot more thinking to be done on that? Yes. I mean, and all I'm just giving you is one example that sort of comes to mind quite quickly. Well, and that makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, you obviously we could go through the whole Bible and go passage by passage and have to, you know, ask that and answer that. And quite frankly, people are going to come away with different understandings on that as well. But I think yep. what's important is to start the conversation to, to at least get people open enough to where they're willing to number one, admit God is a God of accommodation of accommodation. He always has been. And there's no reason for us to believe that today he's not because we see it all throughout the old Testament. We see it through the new Testament. And so the, to me, that foundational truth has to 
be accepted before we can even go further? Because uh, most people who ask this question, and Lee and I had discussed this question prior, because this is a question people ask us. This is the first question people want to run to. When you start talking about accommodation, well, well, where does that take us? Does that mean we can just accommodate anything and anything goes and there's no truth anymore? And so instead of rushing to that question, I think it would be beneficial for people to first say, I agree in the accommodative principle. Now, how far should we take it? That's a different yes. subject really in and of itself. But at least what you're doing, in my opinion, that is so vital is it's helping people take that first step. And instead of running to the 248th step, start with that first step and say, wow, God is a God of accommodation. How then does that affect my life? How then does that affect the way I view scripture? How does that affect the way that I'm going to apply scripture? And you really even brought this up for, for where you're attending church right now. You could go into that congregation and say, hey, I really need to straighten you guys out. And I, I just I just think that you're wrong on this. And I'm going to explain to you why you're wrong and you need to accept this. But because of how you're understanding scripture, you realize that's not the best way to go about that. And so in large part, when you go back to that accommodative principle, I'm seeing how this is far beyond just science and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the temple system and the kings and all of those things. This gets into how do we treat one another? How do yep. we show mercy? How do we show grace? And those are those true Christocentric principles that really ultimately matter. Those are those weightier matters of the law that Jesus referred to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the thing is, if I ever tried that sort of heavy handedness, and I'll give you an example as a university professor, and there's some professors who are have heavy hands on their students in terms of ideas. I think that's the biggest mistake anyone can do. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an, another example of an experience. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that were going on in dental school. And, you know, I was living this, you know, terrible lifestyle. But the Lord had a half a dozen guys who were evangelical Christians. It was my first experience to them. Um, I could not verbalize this back then. But I wanted to be like them. And why? It's because they lived holy lifestyles. They were top of the students in the class. You know, a guy like me, I started drinking on Thursday night. But these guys were, were honest. These guys were even-handed. It was amazing how they treated me with respect. And again, I couldn't verbalize it, but I wanted to be like them. And so Christ was shining through their lives and though some of them would give me apologetics, fair enough, you got to appeal to my mind. I will tell you, it was the lifestyle that attracted me more than anything else. And by the way, uh, and coming back, uh, one of the first guys I phoned, uh, where the K's met the L's in, in dental school, uh, was a guy named Keith Kowalski. And he was one of the first guys I phoned after I phoned my mom. And just to say thank you for your witness. Now, when I phoned him up, I, I, I he recognized my voice. And I said, hey, Kowalski, praise the Lord. And of course, there was this pause going, what the heck? That's Lamaru. And yeah. <laughs> well, that's the, yeah. And, and, and he was so excited. You know, we were about 90 miles away from one another in different cities. We found a, a, a median and we sort of got in our cars and drove so we can have dinner. And, and I thanked him. I said, thank you for your witness. I mean, he was he was he was challenging me apologetically, but it was the lifestyle. And again, I couldn't verbalize it back then, but it was 
So coming back to this discussion, if I came came on and, and acted like a, a really arrogant uh, idiot, uh, boy, that's a put, put it this way: the Holy Spirit would be hammering me really hard. You know, I I just don't even think in that way anymore, though I had moments a long time ago. And the most important thing is. I want to acknowledge you for your love in Christ. And for young earth creationists, I'll say, man, I got to acknowledge you because you're standing up for the faith. Um, so, you know, you chopping me up and stuff like that, that I appreciate. That's fine. I, that, I appreciate your standing with faith. I understand that. But, um, you know, I think there's another way of looking at it. But, but, but in, in me saying that, I, it's an invitation. I, I will only, I will only go through that door if they ask me. I won't uh, I won't force it. Well we've probably used the word accommodative, I don't know, a few million times in this yeah. uh, in this in this podcast. So if anybody's playing a drinking game right now and you take a take a <laughs> take a drink anytime you hear the word accommodative, you're probably hammered by now. But <laughs> but but really the more that we flesh this out, even just on this episode, I'm starting to see that while we use the word accommodative principle, and I think that's a, a correct way of saying it, it's really teaching us also about God and also how we should treat others. So it's a merciful principle. It's a grace principle. It's a patience principle. And Absolutely. It's, yeah. So it's, it's fascinating how you understanding how God has accommodated throughout history has allowed you to be a more accommodating human. And boy, do we not need more of that today? Do we not need to be trying to help and accommodate one another more so and bearing with one another's burdens? I mean, this is fascinating how this runs so much deeper than what it might appear on the surface, because if God is a God of accommodation, and he is, then we too should be people of accommodation. And that involves, like I said, patience, uh, that List, involves and mercy, listening. grace. That's right. Oh, look, you hit it so spot on, Kevin. And um, I try not to talk about other people's countries, um, but in your country, That's okay. You go ahead, brother. We're 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 cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're fine. <laughs> Man, we got to get away from what's going on. And it's not to say we don't have stuff like this in Canada, but this. Think of the this this first debate between Biden and Trump. You know, when I grew up, you know, I'm 66, so I grew up in the 60s. There was Walter Cronkite. It was very professional. It was very genteel. Um, but that debate, what are what are young people, what are children thinking about when they see this madness? And and look at it, it's just not them. I cannot watch CNN anymore. I used to love CNN. CNN has gone sideways. Fox has gone sideways. Everyone's gone sideways. We have to dial it back and we've got to look at Jesus and go, he was patient with us. We need to be patient with everyone else. We're going to have disagreements. That'll, that's okay. But the demonization and the trash talk, I mean, some of the trash talk I would be embarrassed to use when I played college hockey with some of the stuff I've heard on TV. <laughs> and that's saying something right there, man. And I, I think that it just goes back to this world we live in. It's a fallen world. And that's one thing it is that a fallen world. 
that's one thing that all Christians of all stripes agree with, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, evangelical, yep. fundamentalist, whatever. We all recognize that this world is a fallen world. And if I can shift gears one more time as we get ready to, to wrap this up, I'm going to drop the, the heavy question here. You know, if we circle back around to some of those theological implications, we all recognize that this world's a fallen world. And through a lot of different theological um ideologies and ideations throughout history, we all recognize that that fallenness, if you know, we want to refer to it at that, was transmitted, if we may say so, through Adam. And one of the theological ideas is this idea that Adam is the first man that sinned and thereby he brought sin into the world. And we recognize Christ, Jesus is the antidote to that sin. And just like you said, just in our day-to-day life, even a godless atheist could agree even if they don't believe in God and they don't believe in Jesus, that he was a literal person or whatever else, they can look at the scriptures and they can see that Jesus is a pattern to emulate. If yes. we all try to be more like Jesus, then we will accommodate each other. This world will be a better place. But as it relates to Adam, if he is the first man that brought sin into the world and Christ is the antidote to that sin, as Paul discusses in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, a lot of people push back against this idea that we're talking about here with this idea that if the Adam story isn't literal history, then the entire gospel is undermined. And I think that's one of the reasons why people hold on to this for so long. And the Adam question for me was one of the last questions that I had to deal with in order to, to fully embrace this idea of an ancient universe and a biological evolution as being the methodology by which God brought everything into being. And I've read a little bit of what you've written on this. I've read some of what um, Dr. Walton has written on this. And I was just wondering, how do you answer that question if people, you know, it seems like they're willing to accept what you have to say. And they're like, you know what, the evidence, it is incontrovertible. It is so powerful. But I just can't get past Adam. And, and if and if I can interject to add a secondary question, because you, you guys that, that, are really loading up the questions right <laughs> at the end. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hey, but we're we're doing so in a very accommodating way. So it's okay. <laughs> oh, I knew I was going to chew on that one. <laughs> so so in in this, well, really, it goes hand in hand with what Lee's saying because I I do believe that 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 is a a great question. I know that I have have thought about that a lot. And I also think about not just Paul, but even in Jude, you have Jude who uh, in verse 14 talks about how Enoch was the seventh from Adam. And, and I wonder in going with what Lee said and just kind of adding to the, to the questions here, did they believe that Adam was a literal person? Did, did Paul believe Adam was a literal person? Did Jude believe Adam was a literal person or did they believe that this was um, parabolical uh, myth storytelling, whatever you know phrase you want to use for Genesis um, or did they or did they believe that they were literal that Adam was a literal man that Eve was a literal woman who God created in what we would understand straightforward historical record? Wow, I don't know where to start. Um... <laughs> you guys are given the knockout punch at the end. Um, well, look, to answer all these questions, Paul, do you believe in historical Adam? Absolutely. Um, and we can go to what is called Second Temple literature. In other words, Jewish literature before the New Testament. And there's more than enough evidence that, you know, everyone was interpreting that as uh, historical and literal. 
when it comes to Paul, let me let me just try to um, um, approach this Paul question in the following way. Uh, uh, the Kenoda Kim in Philippians 2, one of the most amazing hymns, we sing it in our praise and worship, and it goes like this in verses 10 and 11. In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Where? And you know the verse, in heaven, on earth, and most of our Bibles have an under the earth, but the actual Greek is the underworld. So what's my point here? That the Holy Spirit accommodated to Paul to allow him to use heaven, earth, and underworld, the three-tier universe. So if Paul is using an ancient astronomy, an ancient geography, no surprises, Paul is going to use an ancient biology when it comes to humans. And if you go to all creation accounts around the world, in the ancient world, the idea of people being created quickly and completely, they don't have deep time. They don't have the fossil record. They're not thinking about human evolution whatsoever. So what you're seeing in all these creation accounts, and the technical term is de novo creation, things getting created quickly and completely so yeah that generation near the two testament near, near the new testament and in the new testament with paul would have believed paul is historical and but i would say that this is an ancient biology in the same way paul has an ancient astronomy ancient geography has an ancient biology and so adam ultimately is incidental to get across the notion that humans are sinners all right, let me try to answer the Adam question, and maybe we should do another podcast on this in the way I deal with the question in public. And I like to give options. This is the most important thing. So here's option number one, the de novo creation of Adam and Eve. In other words, de novo means quick and complete creation of Adam and Eve. So Adam from the dust of the ground, Eve from his side. That's theory number one. That's the traditional position. And if you're there, that's fine by me because you're going to get across the same spiritual truths. Theory number two that there's an evolutionary process and one male and one female are given spiritual gifts, the image God, moral culpability. So this is Adam and Eve at the tail end of evolution, which you might be interested. This is, if you wish, the official Catholic position that you find in the Catholic Catechism. Position number three is to suggest that through evolution, at the end of evolution, a group of males and a group of females are given the image of God, moral culpability. So it's evolution with many Adams and many Eves, and that's becoming popular in evangelical circles. And then theory number four is to suggest, let's go back and take a look at Genesis two and three, where Adam and Eve are created, and ask some questions. Do we have the literary genre right? Is this hard and fast history? And I think we can touch on, well, we've got a fast talking snake in this account in Genesis 3. We've got God creating two mystical trees, one that imparts knowledge of good and evil, another mystical tree that imparts eternal life. We have cherubim, of course. We tend to think cherubim are these chubby little angels. No, cherubim are like the sphinx. They're mystical creatures and composite creatures, whereby the body is of a lion, the head is human, and wings of an eagle. And the other thing you have in Genesis 3 is you've got this spinning sword that is actually burning, the flaming sword. So when you take a look at all these features, and the other thing when it comes to Adam, we've sort of personalized the name. It's really a play on Adam and Adama. Adama is earth and Adam is, we've 
personalized it to Adam. It's really a story about a guy, an earthling made of earth and Eve, off the Hebrew Hawa, the verb to be, and a story about a woman who's the mother of life. So you've got these features going on that are sort of jumping out of the text, waving hands going, this strikes us as kind of allegorical or parable-like. Now it's not a parable, but it's parable-like because it is a creation account. Because Adam and Eve are created quickly and completely, the birds and land animals created quickly and completely, there's your ancient science. And so when you look at that, and I'm going to make an appeal now to the New Testament and our Lord and Savior, one third of Jesus' teachings were parables. Uh, what are parables? They're stories. They never happened. And the thing about parables, they're very good to get across spiritual truths. And so think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I absolutely love. And think of the impact of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have laws in legal systems that are called, you know, uh, Good Samaritan law. So tell me this hasn't hasn't had an impact. And <laughs> yeah. But what, what, yeah, but what I'm about to say, I suspect many people have not heard before. When it comes to the parable of Good Samaritan, it never happened. There never was a guy who got rolled over by a bunch of guys. There never was a priest that walked by and a Levite that walked by. And then there never was a Samaritan who healed this guy and brought him to an inn and paid. It's a story. Jesus made up a story. So Dennis, the, now you, you first creation and now the good all right, Samaritan. No, I, I, good. Well, yeah, well, hold it. I, I, I'm, I'm making an appeal to our Lord and Savior. A third of his teaching are stories that never happened. All right, let's zoom back to Genesis 2 and 3. When I look at Genesis 2 and 3, look, this is non-negotiable. It's the inspired word of God. Holy Spirit inspired. It is the inerrant word of God. And is there a is there a better account to tell us who we are? God gives us a wonderful environment. Put Adam and Eve in this luxurious garden. By the way, you know, the word Eden uh, really means luxury. So we don't have to personalize that term. And... You got one command, don't eat from this tree. What do they do? They eat from the tree. And then the Lord comes up to Eve. And this is brilliant. This is who we are. Do you remember what Eve says? It's the snake that made me do it. But then it gets even better. And this is the blame game going on. But it gets even better with Adam. And the Lord God goes up to Adam. And do you remember what Adam does? He blames the woman. But just not that. He says, it's the woman you. He's talking about the Lord here. It's the woman you put here with me. He is blaming God for his sin. This is our story. We are sinners. We don't want to be accountable for our sin. And we're going to make up all sorts of rationalizations to throw a sin away from our accountability and blame other people and not just blame other people. Blame God for our sin. How pathetic is that? Because that describes our sinful nature. Brilliant that, account. Brilliant absolutely. account. And, and that is the one area that we all agree upon throughout Christendom, throughout across denominational lines. Yet the disagreement is what we tend to focus on whenever we have these discussions. And yeah. you said maybe we should have another podcast to talk about the Adam question. And I like that idea. Kevin, what are your thoughts on that? Do you like that idea? Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Dr. Limeru, if if you would be so inclined to sure. join us again, we would love to have you on again. It, it, would you be OK with that? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have a, this is just a, a side question. This should be a pretty easy one for you to answer. But as I'm, as I'm thinking through a lot of what you've said, is it, was it the case? Cause especially when talking about how Paul and, and other uh, in Jews and individuals during that time would have understood Paul to be talking about literal history. He would have thought that it was literal history. And that, that in, in my mind, I'm thinking that would probably raise some, a lot of red flags to people because then people are saying, well, okay, well, you know, what is, what does Paul really know? What does he not know? And if, you know, are we saying that we know more than Paul and, and et cetera, et cetera. But here's one thing that I did think about is, as you were talking Going back to the Old Testament and seeing how God accommodates, there are clear times where we know that God is accommodating and, and God actually tells his own people, I'm accommodating. <laughs> the kings, for example, Paul with the meats and yep. uh, sacrifice to idols. Yep. But by and large, most of the Jews in ancient near during the during the ancient Near Eastern time, they would have not known God was actually accommodating. Am I right in saying that? That this isn't like God saying, okay, this is what the truth is, but uh, I'm going to accommodate. They would have not even known. And I think that's almost part of the accommodative principle is uh, usually when God accommodated and when God accommodates, we aren't privy to that information. We we may be taking it as, as it is at face value, not realizing God is accommodating. So would I be correct in saying that, that just because God accommodated, that doesn't mean that the people who God is accommodating know that they are being accommodated by God. <laughs> I think you're absolutely spot on. And I'll bring you back to my personal story that when I was being called to do this science religion thing and called out of medical school, I had no idea accommodations going on. Now I'm on this side and I look back at that experience and I'm saying to myself, God was calling me. He certainly couldn't call me to say, Dennis, I want you to be an evolutionary creationist because the term evolutionary creation was hardly known back then. So God had to come down to the level I best understood. Now, in retrospect, and we often see this, and you're really saying this with accommodation, it's something you see in retrospect. Now, I, one of the first people I really get a sense of accommodation going on is St. Augustine in the fifth century where he looks at that first chapter of the Bible and he sort of sees it as being knocked down to the level of the average person. So the notion of accommodation is starting to develop that early in history. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I, we have, this has been such an amazing conversation. I just looked at the time. It does not seem like we've been at this for two hours, but we have. And I feel guilty for taking up so much of your time, Dennis. No, don't um, be feel guilty. I just has been an absolute pleasure, an absolute treat. And uh, before I go, uh, I'd, I'd like to pray for all of us. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do have just a couple of real quick questions. These really will okay. be quick questions. Um, <laughs> we only got 248 more quick questions for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If someone wants more information about everything that we have discussed on this, which book of yours do you feel like is the best starting point for someone who wants to know more about these ideas that we've discussed in this podcast? Well, you know, if you, well, here's the one thing. I have a lot of stuff on my website and it's really easy. Just put my name in Google and my webpage shows up and I've got a lot, a lot of lectures and there's some lectures on YouTube, like we talked about, the TED Talk is is a place to go. 
Um, but of all the books, uh, and it's, it sort of happens, your last book is always your best book. And frankly, I think this one that just came out in August called The Bible and Ancient Science, and I made sure the publisher made it nice and cheap at 16 bucks US. Um, you put my name in, uh, in Amazon and you'll find it there. And it's simply entitled The Bible and Ancient Science, principles of interpretation. So what we've been talking about a lot today is how do we interpret the scriptures? And what I do is I go from the bottom upward. Um, you made a nice comment about uh, re regarding teaching. Um, though I teach at a theology school, most of my students are not theology students. So I'm always bringing it down right to the very basics. And then I go from there. And I think this is, um, in my mind, I think it's the best book I've written, but I think it's the most important one because it deals directly with the Bible to simply say the Bible is definitely the word of God, but God accommodated. And you'll see one of the principles is the principle of accommodation. Um, and if we start identifying, it's the messages. And I think most people understand that. It's the messages, the spiritual truths that are the most important ones. Um, those are the ones we should be drawing from Scripture. But I think that would be the best book, frankly. And, I, and it's very accessible. Awesome. Yes, it's extremely accessible. Like I said, I got it last night. I, I started reading it, and I had a hard time putting it down to go to sleep. It, it's just, it's that it's it's such an easy read, but it's so meaty at the same time. It's just it's an excellent book. I'm a third of the way through it, and I love it. It's well, it's you're very kind. You know, and so, here's another here's another thing. If we want to do a podcast and go through the principles and put them together, I'm happy to do that too. I, re awesome. I just really love working with you guys. Well, yeah, that would be you. phenomenal. I bought the book last night, and I'm. I met my wife and I both are looking forward to it. Lee texted me several pictures of it and he's like, dude, you got to check this out. So I'm like, perfect. This looks awesome. Now, so, another, th another thing about the book, you'll notice on the back cover. I mean, we're in the Zoom age right now and I'm getting really comfortable. I At the university, we no longer lecture. We're doing everything online. And I actually have a, an address on the back of the book where we can have a Zoom conversation. And I've already done that with uh, some people who've bought the book and have been a, it's been a really great conversation. So um, to, to get more interactive with people, I think uh, we, could, we could pull something like that off as well. That would be amazing. We'll definitely put some feelers out and see how many yep. in our audience would be interested in that. And yep. we'll put that in our show notes and episode notes as well. We'll put some links to your YouTube things. We'll put some links cool. for your for your personal website. And I'll be in touch with you and we'll get a, a follow-up episode set up to discuss Adam in a little more detail because I think our audience and well, even if they're not interested, I am. So I think that'd be a great conversation. It's a tough topic. It is. Yeah. So that, that's why we saved it for the end when you were, you know, good and good and wore out. Good well, and, 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 and I appreciate you admitting that because oh, far too often we want to be able to just answer every question that is posed at us as, oh, this is easy. And let me explain why and all that's Yeah, that's no big deal. So the fact that you're willing to admit, yeah, this this is something we have to struggle with. Uh, I just think, once again, that really speaks to your humility and also your fairness when discussing this subject. Well, let me give you an example. Zondren put a Four Views book on Adam, and uh, boy, there were seven guys and myself wrestling on this topic. So this is not uh, easily done. 
Yes, Dennis, thank you so much for being with us again. We really appreciate your time. We appreciate your willingness to join us to have this discussion. To all of our listeners, we thank you all for your ever-present listening and patronage. We ask that you would share this podcast with your friends, share it with your neighbors, shoot, share it with your enemies. They need Jesus too. And we, we thank you all so much. Give us a five-star review on Apple or Google or whatever podcast platform of your choice is. Like our Facebook page. If you have any questions, feel free to email us. Shoot us a message on Facebook. I'll get that message. Kevin won't because he's not on there anymore. The slacker. He's leaving me to do all that work. But in <laughs> any case, haha. But we thank you all very much. Dennis, thank you again. And if you would, go ahead and dismiss us in prayer, brother. Well, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed uh, this conversation with both of you gentlemen. Uh, it's been an absolute treat. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share some ideas. And thank you for both Lee and Kevin. Um, they've encouraged me. They've built me up. Uh, I've been so blessed. And Lord, when it comes to all the ideas, Lord, may the ideas that are worth remembering, uh, let those ideas be remembered and those that you don't think are worthwhile, make sure that everyone just plain forgets them. And the most important thing, Father, may we go forward always glorifying your name. These things we pray in Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you again. And to all of our listeners, we will see you again soon.